All right, I want to welcome everyone to Grace Community Church this morning. We're going to continue our study today in the book of Acts. If you have your Bibles this morning, please go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 25. Someone in the back, you give me a thumbs up if you can hear me. All right, we're good. Acts chapter 25. We're going to try to cover a whole chapter of Scripture this morning, and I know some of you are cold, and so we're going to move quickly. But I ask you to join me, and let's ask God to meet with us this morning as a local church as we give attention to His Word. Let's pray. Father, we come to You today as Your children, Lord, adopted by the Gospel. And Lord, it's an amazing thing that we can, Lord, and I amen my brother's prayer that we can call You our Father in Heaven. Sinners though we are, Lord, we have received glorious grace, and we come to You as our Father in heaven today, Lord. God, and I pray on behalf of this family, this local church that's called by Your name, Lord. God, I ask that You would feed Your children this morning with Your Word, God. You're a sovereign Lord. You're an all-wise God. You know what we need. Lord, You know what we need even more than we do. And even, even before we speak it to You, God. And God, as we open your word today, Lord, we pray that you would feed us with your portion, God, that you would give us what we need, that you would sustain the souls of the weary at Grace Community Church. God, I pray for the unconverted today that will hear this word preached, your glorious gospel, Lord, your God breathed scriptures. And Lord, I pray that you would confront them this morning with the reality of your resurrected son, Lord, the Lord of all. God, I pray that you would reveal Jesus to them this morning and that you would encourage every heart. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. Amen. We have mentioned many times as we worked our way through Acts that the book of Acts is. The second volume of a two-volume work written by the same author, Luke. And in volume one, Luke writes about a specific promise that Jesus makes to his disciples. Luke chapter 21 verse 12 says this, You will be brought before kings and governors for my namesake. And then Jesus says this, This will be your opportunity to bear witness. That's the promise of Jesus to His disciples. As we begin to unfold the book of Acts, we see that this promise gets very specifically applied to the Apostle Paul. Acts chapter 9, verse 15, Jesus says this, He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And even just a few weeks ago, we, we saw that reminder that the night that Paul was arrested in Jerusalem, Jesus comes to his servant and he addresses Paul with these words in Acts chapter 23, verse 11. Jesus says this to the Apostle Paul, just as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. So that's what I want you to consider this morning. Promises made 
by Jesus Christ. Very specific promises made by Jesus Christ. And we've been seeing those promises unfold the past several weeks as we've been zoning in on these defense speeches. As the Apostle Paul is on trial, Jesus told this man that he would stand before kings. And that's exactly what we see happening that he's addressing Roman rulers and Jewish rulers with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that very specific promise that Paul received from Jesus was that the next stop was Rome. He said, just as you have borne witness about me in Jerusalem, you will also bear witness about me in Rome. And so as we're reading through the book of Acts, the very next place that we're expecting this narrative to go is straight to Rome according to the promise of Jesus. But instead, we encounter this surprising detour. And this is where we've been since Acts chapter 23. That instead of making a direct pivot to the city of Rome to bear witness for Christ, we see this surprising detour in the city of Caesarea. And this is covered in Acts chapter 23 all the way to Acts chapter 26. And the last verse that we covered last week, last verse of Acts chapter 24, tells us that Paul landed in this city in prison for two years. Two years. So I want you to think about that. Jesus gives him a very specific promise. You will preach the gospel in Rome. And instead of a beeline to Rome to bear witness for Christ, Paul finds himself in a Caesarean jail cell for two years. You think about that. 365 days times two, one day at a time. Okay. Now I want you to back up from that and I want you to consider okay, how uh, surprising this is in, in this narrative. I want you to think about how strange this is. The most fruitful missionary in the world at this time. The most fruitful servant of Jesus Christ in the entire world at this time. Finds himself sidelined from the mission of Jesus. And in a probably nasty, stinky, Caesarean jail cell for two years. And I want you to scratch your head for just a few minutes this morning and think about why why? And here's what I mean. If we're honest with ourselves, okay, if we're honest with ourselves, God's providential dealings with the Apostle Paul in this chapter, um, you know, at first glance, they seem tragically ineffective and, and, and insufficient. You know, a better word there is, is, uh, Inefficient. There's a better way to use this man. Okay, He's a fruitful servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's, a, he's, the, he's the apostle to the Gentiles. Surely there's a better way to do this. Okay, It seems inefficient at first glance. Think about that. Think about um, how Paul could have spent those two years in a, in a little bit different way. Could have spent those two years taking the gospel... The parts of the Roman Empire that didn't have the gospel, unreached parts of the Roman Empire. Just imagine what this servant of Christ could have done with two more years of unhindered missionary labor. It seems inefficient. It seems a better way to use this servant 
of the Lord. And there's something for us to learn here, okay, about providence, about how God deals with Paul and how God deals with us. There's something to learn here. Providence in our life, God's dealings with us in our life, okay, especially in the present tense, can often seem to us as inefficient, okay? That first glance is, surely there's a better way to use me, Lord. Surely there's a better path here, Lord. And this is what the Puritan John Flavel was hinting at when he penned these somewhat famous words. He says, the providence of God is like Hebrew words. It can only be read backwards. Providence of God is like Hebrew words can only be read backwards. Hebrew is a language that you read right to left. And for an English speaker, it seems like that's a backwards thing to do. And what John Flavel says is that the providence of God and His dealings in our life, it's really hard to read that book of providence in the present. And it's a book that's meant to be read as we reflect on God's work in our life. And so I want you to think about that. Make that personal this morning. It's really hard for you to know right now in this moment what God is doing in your life. Okay? Because God is doing thousands of things in your life right now. And you might can put your finger on a few of those things. But it is exceedingly difficult for you to know with precision, God has brought this circumstance into my life. And I know exactly right now why He's doing that. And that's especially difficult in suffering. Especially difficult in suffering to trace the hand of God in the present tense. But as we read this book backwards... This book of Providence backwards, it's easier to trace the hand of God in our life. You know, John Bunyan is an example of this. We know John Bunyan as a famous Christian author. That's how we know him. But in John Bunyan's day, John Bunyan was known as a famous Christian preacher in his day. In fact, one of the greatest theologians in church history, John Owen, he says this about John Bunyan to King Charles. He says to King Charles that he would gladly trade all of his learning. He would gladly exchange it for John Bunyan's power to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. He would gladly lay it to the side and be used by God how God used this country preacher John Bunyan, mighty preacher of the gospel. And that's what he was known for in his day. And one of the things that we know about John Bunyan is that he spent significant time in his life in prison. Twelve years of this man's life was spent in a prison cell, in a jail cell. And think about that. Think about a powerful preacher. Okay, that one of the greatest theologians is ready to exchange all his gifts just to be used like John Bunyan. And yet he's sidelined from preaching the gospel for 12 years of his life. And the same question comes, right? Surely there's a better way to use that man. That seems really inefficient in the way that God is using John Bunyan. And in the present, it's exceedingly difficult to sort that out. But we have... The privilege of reflecting back on John Bunyan's life. And we can trace that hand of providence. We can read that book backwards in John Bunyan's life. And God was doing something beautiful 
in that prison cell. And we know what it was. For 12 years, this man was writing what, became, what has become the greatest Christian book, the most popular Christian book ever written in the history of the church outside of the Bible, The Pilgrim's Progress. And God used that book to, 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 to strengthen many Christians and to bring many people to faith in Jesus Christ. And we can see the hand of God as we reflect backwards that God had a mighty work that He was accomplishing in John Bunyan's life in the midst of that suffering. And it's the same thing we see in the Apostle Paul's life in this section of the book of Acts. Paul spends a total of four years in prison. Two years in Caesarea, and then he spends another two years in prison in Rome. And God, as we look back on the Apostle Paul's life, God is doing a mighty work in this prison cell. And you think if you were a Christian at this time and you hear about the mighty apostle has been thrown in jail. And one year goes by, two years go by, three years go by, four years go by. He's sidelined and you're crying out to the Lord and you're saying, please let him out. Please unhinder this man to preach Jesus Christ. And you're scratching your head and you're trying to wonder, God, what are you doing in this situation? And as we reflect and as we read that book of Providence Backwards, we see that God was doing a beautiful work. You see, it was during this period of Paul's life, this four-year period of imprisonment, that he pens these four letters in the New Testament that we know as the prison epistles of the Apostle Paul. Book of Colossians, Book of Ephesians, Book of Philippians, Book of Philemon. And so I want you to think about that. In the present, everything seems to be dominated by this jail cell and this prison sentence. But today we look back and guess what? That jail cell that Paul sat in for two years in Caesarea, time has crumbled it to concrete dust and it doesn't even exist anymore. But you know what? These letters that Paul penned and this labor that, that, that Paul served the Lord Jesus... God breathed, God inspired words of Scripture, they last forever, and we're still giving attention to them to this day. That's the providence of God in the midst of our suffering. And we ought to take great courage, great courage as we see God deal with servants like Paul, servants like John Bunyan, because brothers and sisters, God has made us a promise. And one of the promises that God has made every Christian in this room, every disciple of Jesus, is that He will never waste your suffering. He will never waste your suffering. It will always accomplish the purpose that He has for you. Always. And we can stare that promise in the face and we can trust our sovereign God. Even if we can't see it in the present moment, we can rest on His promise that my God, He said it, He will work all things, yes, all things for my good. He's going to work it for our good. It's a famous hymn by, by William uh, Cowper. He says, ye fearful saints, listen to this encouragement. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break with blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind the frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. 
The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. We're going to see God work all things for good in Paul's life. And with that background, let's pick up our narrative in verse 1. I'm going to read this passage together. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priest and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem. Because they were planning an ambush. They were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Verse 4. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, he said, let the men of authority among you go down with him. And if there is anything wrong about the men, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them, not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and he ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? And we'll pick that back up in just a minute. But this chapter introduces us to a new Roman magistrate named Festus. And we don't know much about Festus from historical sources outside the Bible except for this one thing. That it's really clear that this man was in his office from A.D. 60 to A.D. 62. Which means that we can have a tremendous amount of historical confidence that the events that we're going to read about today happened in A.D. 60. In the city of Caesarea. And what we see, <clears throat> what we see in this chapter is that Festus is following in the footsteps of the Roman ruler who preceded him, Felix. He's another compromised judge. And I want you to look back at chapter 24. These men were willing to bend justice to accomplish their own purposes. Look at Acts chapter 24, verse 24. We're told about Felix that he desired to do the Jews a favor. And then if we fast forward into our passage today, Acts 25 verse 9, same thing is said about Festus, that in the midst of Paul being tried, that he wished, verse 9, he wished to do the Jews a favor. So this man was a schemer. He was a compromised judge. He was caught between two groups, the Jews that he was trying to please, and the Romans who he had to please. And we see this man trying to maneuver and scheme his way as a man pleaser to pander to, to both groups. This is Festus. He cared enough about Roman justice in those opening verses to not allow a Roman citizen to be openly ambushed. Okay, Because that would have got him back in trouble back in Rome. Caesar wouldn't have liked to hear about that. 
And so he cared enough about Roman justice not allow Paul to be ambushed by these Jewish murderers that wanted to uh, murder him on the way to Jerusalem. But he didn't care enough about Roman justice to release a man who he knew was innocent. So he's a compromised man. He sits in the seat of justice, but he's an unjust man. This is Festus. And then we pivot to the Apostle Paul. And he stands before his accusers in verse 8 in Caesarea. And we see Paul categorically deny the charges that are made against him. And these charges fit in three categories. And the book of Acts doesn't tell us everything that they were charging him with. These are summaries of what was said. And so the, the charges that were being made against the Apostle Paul fit into these three categories. And Paul looks them in the face and he says, absolutely innocent on all three accounts. And in verse 8, he couldn't be more clear. He says this, he says, I have not broken Jewish law, have not against, sinned against the Jews. And then he goes on to say, I have not broken temple law. You remember that's one of the charges they levied against him about defiling the temple. Paul says, nope, didn't do that either. And then finally he comes and he says, and by the way, I haven't broken Caesar's law either. So the Apostle Paul stands before his accusers in Caesarea, categorically denies everything that they're saying. And he, and he says, I'm innocent. I'm an innocent man. So although he's a Christian and bows the knee to Jesus Christ as his Lord... We have a full-throated confession from the Apostle Paul that though he's a Christian, he still lives like a faithful Jew. And he still lives like a, ro a loyal Roman citizen. He's innocent. He's innocent. He is a righteous sufferer. And he joins a long line of men in the Word of God who are innocent and yet they suffer. They're righteous Sufferers, men like Abel, men like Job, men like Joseph, men like Jeremiah, men like, like Daniel. And all these are just a foreshadow of the Lord Jesus Christ. The true and better, the one true righteous sufferer. And that's Paul in this narrative. He is righteous and he is suffering under injustice. And then we'll pick it back up in verse 10. But Paul said, I'm standing before... Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourselves know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. So Paul perceives that, he's, that, he, that the deck is stacked against him. Okay? And that, that he is the recipient, he's about to be the recipient of an unjust legal verdict. And what we see Paul do in this appeal, this is a formal... Roman procedure that, that has a Latin name that we would say provocio. Okay? And what this is, is this, is, this was a, a fundamental right of a Roman citizen. A citizen of the city of Rome. And, and that's what Paul was. He wasn't just a subject of Caesar. 
He was more than that. He was also a citizen of the imperial city of Rome itself. And one of the privileges that Roman citizenship granted was that if you were on trial as a Roman citizen in the far reaches, the, the provinces of the Roman Empire, you could formally appeal, you could provocio, and you could have your trial moved into the confines of the imperial city. And you could be tried by Caesar's representative. Okay? This is the appeal to Caesar. It is a, it is a legal move that goes around unjust Festus. And this is Paul's maneuver in this passage. Now, surprisingly, and I would say even very surprisingly, the Caesar that he appeals to in this passage, 60 AD, is the Roman Emperor Nero, who becomes known to us Christians in church history as a brutal tyrant who oversaw the execution and, and brutal persecution of thousands of Christians in the year 65 AD. <clears throat> so it might surprise us that Paul makes the appeal um, to this man Nero, to, to, to Nero's representative, with just in five years, Nero's going to be lighting Christians on fire like human candlesticks to entertain his dinner guests in his royal gardens. This is a wicked man. History tells us that early in Nero's reign, he was much more moderate of a ruler. And there's a, there's a famous teacher that tutored Nero, Roman teacher known as Seneca. And during these years, the, the story was different for, for Christianity. Christianity did not suffer widespread Roman persecution in this particular period, but we know it's coming really, really soon. Really, really soon after after these things and all through the book of Acts, we see um, that the Romans uh, over and over again, as Paul, you know, gets into legal trouble and as the gospel goes forth, surprisingly, the Romans are used by God to protect the gospel and to protect his apostle. And so this is the appeal to Caesar. The case would now be taken out of Festus's hands. And it would now be placed into the representative, Nero's personal representative in the city of Rome. And there's really nothing that Festus can do about it. Okay. Now I want us to think about that. There's something that I believe that we can learn as followers of Christ, especially as it relates to providence and how God deals with us. I believe there's something for us to learn about Paul's appeal to Caesar in this passage. And so one of the things that we all agree. As Christians in this room. That ultimately God gets the glory. For delivering Paul from this situation. So you have this unjust ruler named Festus. You have this murderous mob ready to ambush him. And some things happen in Paul's life. And all of a sudden he's on his way to Rome. Delivered from Festus. Delivered from these Jews. And we would say ultimately God gets the glory for that. Ultimately, God rescued the Apostle Paul from, these un, from this unjust ruler, and we would be right. But this passage shows us that the means that the sovereign God used to deliver Paul in this particular situation was his pagan Roman citizenship. Our sovereign God delivered him 
But the means that our sovereign God used was His pagan Roman citizenship. And I think that this helps us do away with any inappropriate grids that we might have of what we would call super spiritual Christianity. Okay? Super spiritual Christianity. And here's what I mean by that. Some people think that if something is spiritual, it always has to happen in a direct, unmediated way, straight from God. Nothing between God and man. Okay? And if it's really spiritual, that's always how it's going to be. This is why all over this particular part of the world, you have Christians you know, jumping up and, up and down about God told me this in my prayer closet. God told me this in this dream. It seems more spiritual in a twisted way if it's coming direct, if it's not mediated in any way. And this passage gives us a framework to deal with that. Okay. So I want you to imagine this super spiritual Christianity framework that if something's really spiritual, it has to happen direct from God. I want you to imagine smuggling that mindset and that framework into this passage. And if you smuggled it in... You would judge the Apostle Paul as a sellout. What a sellout. Okay? What a sellout. And here's what I mean. That mindset would go about it like this. That yeah, God delivers His people. God delivers His people in all kinds of situations. Even from jail. Even from unjust rulers. But God does it in a supernatural way. And, 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 and unless it happens in this way, you're a sellout. And so think about that. We've seen that. Our God does act in that way. Direct way. He needs no permission to do anything that He does. And so we see God rescue His servant Peter earlier in the book of Acts. The angel comes down. Direct, unmediated. Boom! Doors of the jail fly open. Peter's walking down the street. And then later in the book of Acts, even in the Apostle Paul's life, Paul finds himself in a Philippian jail. Okay? Philippian jail. And all of a sudden, earthquakes start shaking. And what do you know? Shakes hard enough, busts the uh, locks off the uh, prison gate, and, and, and he's free to go if he wanted to. He's free to go. And so God has already shown that he can work like that. Okay? But that hyper spiritual mindset says he always must work like that. And if we smuggle that mindset in, we see that Paul is a sellout in this passage and that his appeal to Caesar, that's all this fleshly stuff. That's fleshly stuff. All these means that God would use. And we know that that framework would be completely inappropriate. Okay? We know that Paul is not selling out in this passage. This is God's provision for His servant in this particular situation. And one of the things that that teaches us about God is our God is a God of means. I hope you know that. That the sovereign God and the, and the one who is Lord of all, the one who says, let there be light and there is light, He is a God of means. He's a God of means. And the normative way that He leads His children and His people is through means and providence. Means and problems. This is the way it works. The normal Christian life. That you find yourself in a situation like this and God provides the way of escape. Even if it's a pagan Roman citizenship. 
So to Caesar, Paul appealed. Festus says to Caesar, he will go. And then we have one problem left to solve in this passage. And this problem speaks to how innocent this man is. Okay? That even though he's been sitting in a jail cell for two years, they don't know what to write to, to Caesar of what he did wrong. So imagine that. that you're sitting there, you're wasting away one day after the other, and they don't even know what to put on the paper of he did X, Y, Z. And so Festus organizes this show trial with this Jewish king in hopes of establishing these charges. And we'll pick the text up again in verse 13. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priest and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered, I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had the opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss of how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. Verse 23. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. And they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes, and the prominent men of the city. Then, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa, and all who are present with us, you see this man, about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about the case. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So we're introduced here to another character. And we'll talk more about King Herod next week. And 
Acts 26, as the Apostle Paul evangelizes this man. But this is Herod Agrippa II. And this man comes from a murderous line of Jewish kings known as the Herodian dynasty. So if you're reading your New Testament, you know that word shows up quite a bit. Herod did this. Herod did this. And he's in that family line. His grandfather was Herod the Great. This is the king that gave the order for all the little babies to be slaughtered around the time uh, that Jesus was born. Wicked, wicked man. His uncle was the one who oversaw the beheading of John the Baptist. The one who uh, had a part to play in the trial of Jesus himself. And then this is Herod II. His dad, Herod Agrippa I, was the one who gave the sentence to execute James the Apostle earlier in the book of Acts. And then God uh, rises up and strikes the man dead for blasphemy in a moment. And this is the family that this man is a part of. He's a wicked Jewish king. He's a wicked Jewish king. And he's being pandered to by Festus, trying to do the Jews a favor in order to establish charges against the Apostle Paul. And we've mentioned this before, and I want to mention it again, that I want you to note the parallels in the book of Acts between the trials of the Apostle Paul and the trials of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're intentional. Luke's Gospel... Same author as the book of Acts. And there's something very intentional that he does in both books. In the trial of Jesus, there are three separate verdicts given by Roman rulers, that Pilate, that says Jesus is innocent. I find him guilty of no charges. Fast forward to the book of Acts. Same author, different man on trial. Now it's the Apostle Paul. Three separate declarations from Roman rulers. Paul is innocent. And this is one of the things that the Luke-Acts volume is meant to do. Is establish the innocence of Jesus in the eyes of Roman law. And the innocence of the Apostle Paul in the eyes of Roman law. Because there's a persecution that's broken out by the time that this book is written. And this is an apologetic to the Roman rulers that that persecution is fundamentally unjust. The founder of Christianity, Jesus, was innocent. Your rulers said he was innocent. The apostle to the Gentiles, um, uh, the Roman rulers declared him to be innocent too. Three different times. And yet persecution was soon to break out against the church. So these are the parallels. And, and the main thing that, I, that Luke is after in this particular section of the book of Acts is to show you the innocence of the Apostle Paul. And so look, we'll take it straight from Festus's mouth, the Roman ruler. In verse 24, he says this explicitly. He says, I, find, I found that he had done nothing deserving of death. Innocent. It's not even up for debate anymore. The Roman judge is saying, I know he's innocent. And so what we have here in this show trial is a, a combination of Roman rulers and Jewish rulers. And if you remember back to Jesus' trial, that same combination was there. 
that Pilate, the Roman ruler, pivoted to Herod and asked Herod to weigh in at the trial of Jesus. And we see the same thing happening in Paul's life. And so there's intentional parallels here of an innocent man suffering injustice. Injustice. Now, if, we're, if we go back to where we started and we zone in at this show trial... And this, you know, backside of this two-year period of Paul being in prison, if we were to zone ourselves into that moment, it's very difficult for us to see what God is up to in Paul's life at this particular time. And we said that. Providence is a difficult book to read in the present. It's meant to be read backwards. But as we take the long view and as we look at Paul's life from our perspective, some things emerge that are very clear. And I want you to notice this. So if we're to zone in in this show trial and you are to pay careful attention to some contrast in this courtroom, you would have seen two separate groups. One group is mentioned in verse 23. This is the rulers, and it says they came with great pomp, military tribunes, prominent men of the city. And Herod stands at their head. And that's one group, the pompous ones, the ones who are successful, filled with prominence and filled with pride. And in the midst of these leaders and these prominent men, you'd have this other group represented by the Apostle Paul. And in the midst of the pompous leaders, he stands there as a prisoner. And in the next chapter of the book of Acts, we know that he's presently wearing chains. He's a chained man. So you have these two groups, and they're a sharp contrast. The pompous ones versus the prisoner. The pompous ones versus the righteous sufferer. And we don't know how this thing's going to end if we were zoned in in that moment. But as we zone back, and as we take the long view, and as we reflect on the work of God in this particular situation, things get exceedingly clear. And I want you to consider this. In Acts 25, the wicked King Herod, he is wearing his royal robes as a wicked Jewish king. If you would have laid eyes on him, you would have thought loaded, prominent status. He's got it. He's got it all. This is the pompous one. He is enjoying his momentary pompous strut through this world. Things are going well for him. Things are going well for him. But from this eternal perspective, as we read this thing backwards, we know where this man is right now. Let that set in this morning. The one who is filled with pomp. The one who had tremendous success, power, riches, and status right now and forever. He is in hell being judged by God. That's the pompous ones. And then if we were to zone in on the Apostle Paul, and we were to pay a little careful, more careful attention to this prisoner, this lowly prisoner, standing before these exalted rulers. Underneath his prisoner's clothing, Paul is wearing in this moment unseen garments. 
unseen royal garments. And they're not like the royal garments of this wicked Jewish king Herod. They're, they're, they're garments, and the scriptures call them the robes of righteousness. The royal garments of righteousness. And they don't belong to a wicked Jewish king. They belong to the true Jewish king. The king of kings. The Lord of lords. He is actually clothed in this moment. Not just in a prisoner's garment. But with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And from this eternal perspective. We know that this man was headed to eternal An unending glory. And right now, in this moment, the Apostle Paul is with Jesus Christ. He is with Christ right now. And so time becomes the great equalizer in all mankind. And it ensures that God, the sovereign Lord, will have the final say in the life of every individual person. He will. This is what God does. Luke chapter 1 verse 51. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. And He has exalted those of humble estate. If you have the short view, the immediate present view, you're going to look at that verse and you're going to say, you mean... You mean God does that? God doesn't do that. I see the opposite happening all around me. Which is why, brothers and sisters, you need the long view. And you need to back up and you need to, you need to, you need to trace the hand of God. <coughs> Reflect on the mighty works of God. And the long view shows us that this is exactly what God does. He will have the final say. He will tear down the proud. He will scatter the proud. And He will exalt The humble. Consider Herod and consider Paul right now. Right now. In Acts 25, these two men, they stand as examples of two different ways of living. Two different ways of living. One is a way of pride that opposes God. And the other is a way of humility that submits to God. Two different paths. And they couldn't be more different. And to the unconverted in the room today, Herod's life is a terrifying example. It's a terrifying reminder that the path of pride, that way of living, the path of pride and arrogance, here's the terror. It can be filled with prominence. It can be filled with riches. It can be filled with momentary Pleasure. It can look like you're strutting through this world with no problems, with everything that you want. But the problem with this path is that it ends with eternal destruction. God scattering the proud. God tearing down the proud. Never ending punishment for his sin. And then Paul's life. To to brothers and sisters in the room, Paul's life is a sobering reminder to us. And the sobering reminder is this, that this other path, this other way of living, this path of humility and submission to God and honoring the Lord Jesus Christ can be filled with great suffering 
and tremendous injustice. And this is exactly what is wrong with the prosperity gospel is that it reverses exactly what we see in this passage. The false gospel that says you bow the knee to Jesus and you have enough faith and you'll have all the money you want, all the health you want, all the status you want. You name a car, you claim a car. You name a house, you claim a house. You name health, you claim health. Folks, that's Herod in this passage. That's not Paul. Paul's in chains. Paul spent two years in prison. It gets it fundamentally backwards. And that's that sobering reminder that the path of the cross, the path of humility, can be a path of tremendous suffering and injustice. But we're also encouraged that this path is the path that ends in eternal life, in eternal glory, in the presence of Jesus. We can even reflect on, on this in Paul's life. He's in prison. And he's in chains in Acts 29, I mean 25, but right now he's with the Lord Jesus. And he'll never know a moment for all of eternity where he's separated from the Lord Jesus Christ. These are the two paths, the two ways of living. And at the end of the day, this is the only two. There's no third option. It's, the, it's path number one is the path of submission to Jesus Christ. Christ is Lord. Path number two is the path that opposes God. There's these two ways of living. And this passage tells us that there's a fork in the road that determines which way every individual will go. And you need to know this. That there's one thing that will determine which path that you are on. The path of pride and opposition that God will tear down. Are the path of humility that God will raise up. And the fork in the road is the Lord Jesus Christ. The man from Nazareth that lived a perfect life. That died as an atoning sacrifice for sin that was raised from the dead. He has so much authority that he will singularly be the determining factor of eternal punishment or eternal life. And this is the exact thing that separates Herod and Paul in this courtroom. There's one thing. There's one thing that changes everything else. It's mentioned in verse 19. A certain Jesus. There is a certain Jesus. Who was dead. But whom Paul asserted to be alive. This is what separated Paul and Herod. A certain Jesus. The one who was dead, but the one whom Paul asserted to be alive. This is the central claim of Christianity. This is it. This is the very center. That Christ died for our sins and was raised on the third day. Jesus is alive. That is the message of the Christian church. And this is what separated these two men. Herod took Jesus to be a nice religious chap. A moral Jewish rabbi. Sure, he had some good things to say. His uncle was even intrigued by what Jesus had to say. And that's all he saw Jesus to be. A certain Jesus. A good religious teacher. Give him some of your attention, but that's about it. And then you have the 
this other way of living. It's the Apostle Paul. And to him, there was this certain Jesus. And yeah, he died. He really did die. He had no pulse. His body was cold. They stuffed him in a tomb. Not for just three minutes. For three days. He was dead, dead, dead. And then Paul's claim was that this certain Jesus was raised to life. And he's not dead, dead, dead. But that he lives, he lives, he lives. Paul took Jesus to be the heaven-sent Son of God. The one who conquered death with His glorious resurrection. And so you think about that. This is the one thing that changes everything else in your life. What have you done with a certain Jesus? What have you done with a certain Jesus? The one who died... But the one who is asserted, he's not dead anymore. He's alive. What have you done with him? What have you done with Jesus, the resurrected Lord? I would submit this to you, that a real conviction in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, it separates religious pretenders from real disciples. What separates religious pretenders from real disciples is some believe that Jesus really emptied the tomb. This is not a myth. This is not an accessory that you add on to your life. We believe that a man from Nazareth swallowed death. He conquered death. That's the real disciples. Religious pretenders don't believe that. They give lip service to the reality of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. So think about that this morning. If you really believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, if you really believe that there was a man from Nazareth who never sinned, died an atoning sacrifice for sin, and then was raised from the dead, if you believe that Jesus is more powerful than death, that He has authority to overwhelm death. If you really believe that about Jesus, do you really think that you would trifle with His commandments? That you would call Him Lord, Lord, and not do what Jesus commands you to do? No, I would submit that if you do trifle with the commands of Jesus, that you really don't believe that this man overwhelmed, overpowered death itself. You really don't believe that He has authority over death, hell, and the grave. This is the one thing that changes everything. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's not just an idea that we study. He's a living Lord that's present right now in this room. He knows what you think. He knows what you feel. He is the one that lives. He's the one that lives. Nominal Christianity... The resurrection banishes it. There's no room for it for someone who's convinced that Jesus is the living Lord. Can't play games with the one who emptied the tomb. Can't do it. It also, resurrection is also the, the end of, I'm so sinful, I don't know if God can save me. Think about that. The resurrection, this, this claim that there was a certain Jesus who was dead, that Paul asserted to be alive, this is more than a claim that Jesus has a pulse right now. Though, he, though, though it is a claim that He lives. You need to understand this. When Christians confess Jesus is alive, 
It means more than he was a corpse, now he has a pulse. It's a claim of authority. You have to understand that. The claim that Jesus lives is synonymous with saying he's Lord. He is the one who overwhelmed death. He is the one who has all power and all authority. It's a claim to his lordship, his universal supremacy. The one who conquered death. So think about that. The, the, the one who is convinced of the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. It banishes those silly thoughts that any human being in this room could be too sinful for Jesus to save you. Think about how silly you sound to yourself. That this man from Nazareth overcomes death and your sins are too much for Jesus. It's the one thing that changes everything. That he died, but now he lives forevermore. He is the one who lives as Lord of all. A certain Jesus. This passage reminds us that you believe that and you're saved. You come to the Lord Jesus Christ as the living Lord of all. In faith alone apart from works. And you're saved forever. Doesn't matter how bad things go for you in this life. Doesn't matter how much suffering you endure. How much injustice you endure. Your God will comfort you with eternal glory. Resurrection is the one thing that changes everything. And Herod stands as a reminder that if you reject this. This claim that there was a certain Jesus. Who died but now he lives. This passage will remind you that God will judge you as a proud man or woman that has rejected the testimony that God has borne for His only Son. You will be judged proud. And this passage is a reminder that God will scatter you. Romans chapter 10 gives us the call all across the room. Romans 10.9, this, this is the call of the Gospel. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And if you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. One thing changes everything. Let's pray. Father, we come to You today, Lord, and we come to worship Jesus. We come to humble ourselves before You as Your children. God, we pray that You'd fill us with the boldness and the confidence that comes with rightly knowing Jesus Christ. Fill us with the full assurance of faith. God, I pray that You would fill my brothers and sisters this morning with trust. Every member of Grace Community Church and especially those who are suffering right now. Trials of various kinds, Lord. God, I pray that You would powerfully remind them this morning that You will work all things for good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.